Welcome again to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. This is the podcast where Tanner talks about stuff that happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. In this podcast, we dip our toes into a lot of different historical events. It's not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account of anything that happened, just a basic outline so you have a general understanding of everything that took place, so that if you want to springboard into your own research, you have a place to do it. And this week, we are talking about... Live Aid, the Live Aid concert of 1985. But before we get into that, really quickly, I got a few announcements. First of all, uh, from this point forward, I will be releasing episodes on Sunday evenings or at midnight um, on Monday morning. This is essentially due to the fact that I work a lot and generally I'm very tired on Thursdays when I usually release episodes, record and release, uh, and throughout the week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Those are always very busy days for me and I have a lot to do so I can be very tired by the time uh, I I want to release an, uh, a podcast episode. So I'm going to start doing it on Sundays because Sunday's my day off and so I will have plenty of time just to relax and get the episode out. Um, so I'm going to start doing that from this point forward. And now the second, ep- the, the second announcement is that uh, I'm uh, creating a new format for the podcast, and that format is a four-part format. So every four days, I will, I will, uh, every four weeks, I'll be releasing four um, different types of episodes based on certain categories. Uh, and the first part, uh, the first category is music and culture. Uh, that's the first week of the month. Second week is uh, economics. Third week is ancient history. Fourth week is war, because I'm interested in each of these. Um, each of these topics, and so I want to have a place where I can uh, explore all of them in a format rather than just spitballing and saying, well, this is interesting, well, this is interesting, and also it will make it more easy to follow for the listeners. Occasionally, I will also do a special topics episode, which does not fit into any of the above topics, but is just equally as interesting. Um, so I'm sorry that I've been gone. Uh, I was I was gone a week ago, and I didn't get an episode out until this Sunday because I was establishing the new format. That is why I was doing it. And now from this point forward, this is how I will be handling things. I've built a new studio, and that's where I'm going to be doing most of my recording. So uh, I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to get back on the horse and uh, keep things categorized here. And this week, let's get into it. We're talking about Live Aid. In 2018... A movie was released about the rise of the band Queen, the very famous band Queen. Everyone has heard a song by the band Queen and the live and the life of frontman Freddie Mercury. It was a fantastic movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And at the climax of the movie, in the final scene, Queen is shown to be playing live at Wembley Stadium in one of the greatest live music events in history, Live Aid. When you have an understanding of what this concert was and the events that transpired leading up to it, this scene is even more impactful. Live Aid was a benefit concert held at two locations on opposing sides of the Atlantic Ocean on July 13th, 1985. It was held at Wembley Stadium in London and the John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania simultaneously, while also being broadcasted live internationally. The event was organized to provide relief to the people of Ethiopia who were enduring the worst famine the country had seen in over a century. All right, we're jumping back a bit less than 40 years here. So let's, uh, 50 years, excuse me. So let's hop in our podcasting time machine and here we are, Ethiopia, 1974. 
Uh, just a precursor to what I'm going to be talking about here. Ethiopia in 1974 up until about 1985, it really was not a happy place to be living. I'm going to be describing some events that were very tragic and very evil, to be to be honest about it. Uh, so just a quick um, disclaimer there. So let's get into it. After the topple of a fragile monarchy in Ethiopia in 1974, the country became a military state ruled by the DERG, D-E-R-G, or the Provisional Military Government of Socialist Ethiopia. That was their proper name. The DERG were a Marxist-Leninist military dictatorship led by Mengistu Haile Mariam. I may be saying that totally wrong, but I'm just going to be referring him as, to him as a President Mariam. Uh, quick refresher. Marxism-Leninism is a philosophy that seeks to establish a socialist state to develop further into socialism and eventually communism, a classless social system with common ownership of the means of production, with full social and economic quality of all members of a society. In theory, it's an excellent economic system, very equalist, but in practice, it hasn't proved fruitful on a large scale up to this point in history, unfortunately. In the years following the deposition of the monarchy and the establishment of the Derg, the Derg faced mounting opposition for their inability to create the prosperity promised during their rise to power. Following numerous coup d'etats, uprisings, and a civil war, the Derg decided to show the country who was in charge and executed the Ethiopian Red Terror, where, under the direction of dictator Miriam, soldiers and armed volunteers began systematically exterminating members and supporters of the chief opposition to the regime, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party. It's estimated that 500,000 people or more were killed during the Red Terror between 1976 and 1977. To add insult to injury, the Derg then nationalized nearly all private industry in the nation, along with many urban buildings solidifying their communist hold on the nation. In the six years following the end of the Red Terror, a collection of policies and actions by the regime caused a fall in general productivity of the nation. I mean, when you're under that kind of repression, you don't really want to work for the people who are telling you to do so, right? The violent rule of the Derg, mandatory conscription into the military, constant insurgencies in Eritrea and Eritrea, however you would like to pronounce that, uh, and Tigray, both regions of Ethiopia at that point, economic decline and political repression, these all caused a refugee crisis in the country, a diaspora, if you will, where many citizens meant to fuel the communist machine were now leaving the communist machine in search of better lives. And in 1983, these factors led to a famine in Ethiopia. To add to that, in 1984, many regions of the country received record low levels of rainfall, and in the same year, President Miriam, the orchestrator of the Red Terror, allocated 46% of the gross national product of the country to the military in an attempt to crush insurgencies in the nation. It was the perfect storm. And by 1985, the people of Ethiopia were in dire straits. Thousands were dying every single day. And because of the oppressive, re oppressive regime of uh, President Miriam, many Western nations were reluctant to help. This was a problem in a faraway land, and it didn't need our help. This is elsewhere. But that all changed on October 23rd, 1984, 
when the 9 o'clock nationwide news aired on the British Broadcasting Corporation channel. In a seven-minute segment, British reporter Michael Burke pays a visit to several Ethiopian towns across the country, documenting what he sees and writing in film. With the opening line, A Biblical Famine of the 20th Century, images of huge crowds of Ethiopian people wrapped in primitive clothing, emaciated, crying, and dying, suddenly filled the television sets of British citizens. From the comfort of their living rooms, suddenly, the British populace was confronted with the horrors going on in Ethiopia. In, re in researching for this podcast episode, I watched this seven-minute TV spot, and, and I can see why the report galvanized the Western world. It's really gut-wrenching and very upsetting. It's not fun to watch. To get a feel for exactly what was going on in the country, I would recommend going and watching this so you are educated about why Live Aid was so important and why so many people were galvanized to help. The following night, NBC News in the United States aired the footage, bringing the pain and suffering of the Ethiopian people into the hearts of the American people, and specifically into the hearts of Boy George, lead singer of the band Culture Club, and Bob Geldof, Irish singer-songwriter and political activist. Boy George had the idea of hosting a benefit concert and presented the idea to Bob Geldof. Together, they wrote a song to be performed at the end of a local show, and the song would come to be known as Do They Know It's Christmas. The song was meant to fundraise $70,000 to be sent to Ethiopia, and instead, it topped the charts in the UK for five weeks and brought in over 8 million British pounds in revenue. After seeing the success, Bob Geldof started thinking bigger. With the images of the Ethiopian people still fresh in his mind, Geldof began orchestrating the largest live music event in history up to that point, and his vision was clear. Have two live music events being performed simultaneously at Wembley Stadium and Madison Square Gardens. Speaking to a UK music magazine in January of 1985, Geldof said, quote, The show should be as big as humanly possible. There's no point in just 5,000 fans turning up at Wembley. We need to have Wembley linked with Madison Square Gardens and the whole show to be televised worldwide. It would be great for Duran Duran to play three or four numbers at Wembley and then flick to Madison Square, where Springsteen would be playing. While he's on, the Wembley stage could be made ready for the next British act, like the Thompsons or whoever. In that way, lots of acts could be featured and the television rights, tickets, and so on could raise a phenomenal amount of money. It's not an impossible idea, and certainly one worth exploiting. Close quote. I've done some work in producing certain forms of entertainment over the years on a small scale, and I can attest to the ambition of this undertaking. Bob Geldof set to work. He enlisted the help of Harvey Goldsmith, a British music promoter, and Bill Graham, a German-American music promoter, to handle the production of both concerts. Together, they were able to secure John F. Kennedy Stadium and Wembley Stadium for the same date, July 13, 1985. And with this, it was time to get a lineup in order. Geldof could see that his vision would need some string pulling in order to work. He wanted dozens of the most famous artists of the time in the same location at the same time for the same show, and that was a lot to ask. In an interview, Andy Zweck, the head production manager of Live Aid, said, quote, Bob had to play some tricks to get artists involved. 
he had to call Elton John and say, Queen are in and Bowie's in. And of course they weren't. Then he'd call David Bowie and say, Elton John and Queen are in. It was a game of bluff, end quote. To put it simply, there was a lot of gambling involved with the uh, production of the show. With this game of misdirection, amazingly, the producers of Live Aid were able to attract the likes of 75 different musical acts, including Elton John, Madonna, Santana, Run DMC, Sade, Sting, Brian Adams, The Beach Boys, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Duran Duran, U2, The Who, Tom Petty, Neil Young, and Eric Clapton, and yes, Queen. Somehow, after only 10 weeks of preparation, it all paid off. If you listen to my episode on the Woodstock Festival of 1969, the very first episode of this podcast, you might draw some striking parallels in the preparation time for both of these festivals. Next was the idea of a live-streamed broadcast worldwide, initially conceived by Bob Geldof. In the 1980s, live streaming was a different beast than it is today. Today, anyone around the world can just hop on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, or any other live streaming service across the internet and live stream for however long they want. But in the 1980s, these social media streaming services didn't exist. The producers were able to sign a deal with the ABC network, securing a three-hour slot for a segment of the concert to be nationally broadcasted. While it wouldn't showcase the entire 16-hour concert, it would be enough to bring in some more funds to send to Ethiopia. The showcase, uh, to showcase more of the production, the organizers also contracted several TV crews to create a four-hour video that could be distributed to countries who didn't have the means to receive the live feed. At noon on July 13th, 1985, to a crowd of 72,000 in Wembley Stadium, the Coldstream Guards of the Guards Division and the Foot Guard Regiment of the British Army played a brief rendition of God Save the Queen to kick it all off as Princess Diana and Prince Charles entered the venue and took their seats. Immediately after, broadcaster Richard Skinner went live with the words, It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia, and around the world, it's time for live aid. Status quo took the stage, and the concert began. For the next 16 hours, act after act would alternate between London and the United States. A band would perform for 20 minutes at Wembley, and while they were setting up for their next act, a group would perform for another 20 minutes in Philadelphia. And when they were finished, the next act would be ready in Britain. In 2018, I attended the U.S. National Warped Tour, the last one, unfortunately, and Warped Tour had a similar setup where one band would perform while another band set up on a stage next door. So immediately after the first band finished with their set, the second band could begin. Warped Tour is a very punk rock scene. I'm, I'm not sure if my listenership is into that, but I am. Anyway, the broadcast was massively successful. It's estimated that the broadcast ultimately reached 1.9 billion people across 150 nations, nearly 40% of the world population. 40 to put that into perspective, that's almost as many people as tuned in to at least one minute of the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics. During the show, the BBC had 300 people using telephones to take donations from viewers, and at one point, there were over $300 a minute being donated. And such a huge undertaking wouldn't be complete without some excellent stories. 
The band U2 was catapulted to fame with their performance in Live Aid. During their performance of the song Bad, lead singer Bono glanced down during an instrumental part of the song and jumped toward the crowd, pulling a woman from the crowd, hugging her, and dancing with her for several moments before returning to the stage. Later, that woman would be interviewed and tell reporters that Bono actually saved her life. He saw that she was being crushed by the crowd behind her, and that was why he jumped down and pulled her from the crowd. So hearing this story, I looked for the video of that moment and found it pretty easily, and I watched Bono look down, see the woman, and gesture to ushers to pull her from the crowd. The ushers didn't understand what he was saying, and so he jumped off the stage to help her himself. After he does, he wraps her in this very touching embrace that brought enormous cheers from the crowd. And I don't say touching embrace to make it more interesting to hear. I say it because when he hugged her, I could feel the tenderness in it. It was very emotional. It wasn't just a publicity stunt. And I decided that Bono's a pretty cool guy. Following the show, every U2 album up to that, up to that point rocketed into the UK Top 20. The band The Who had a pretty rough go on stage, plagued by technical difficulties brought about by a blown fuse box and a malfunctioning bass guitar. Their performance was described by Rolling Stone magazine as rough, but right. But you gotta look at it through a wider lens. The performance at Live Aid was The Who's first live show together since they disbanded after a 1982 farewell tour. I think their fans were just happy to see them together again. During his performance of Let It Be, Paul McCartney's piano-mounted microphone failed and most of the crowd couldn't hear his vocals. As crew members rushed to, to the stage to repair the microphone, our friend, Bob Geldof, quickly recruited David Bowie, Alison Moyet, and Pete Townsend, and the four of them entered the stage to join Paul in singing the remainder of the song. When the crowd saw the quartet enter, they began singing along as well, and by the end of the song, when Paul's microphone was fixed, the entire stadium was singing along to Let It Be. I love going to concerts, and I love when things like that happen, and I think that was probably a pretty magical moment. While Bob Dylan was playing with the Rolling Stone guitarists uh, Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood, his guitar string broke, so Ronnie Wood quickly took off his own guitar and handed it to Bob Dylan. Obviously, this left Ronnie Wood guitarless, so what did he do? The only logical thing. He played air guitar in front of 1.9 billion people. And it was awesome. Duran Duran had a disappointing appearance, punctuated by an off-key falsetto note hit by frontman Simon Lebon during the song A View to Kill. The singer later recalled it as the most embarrassing moment of his career. To add insult to injury, it was the last time the band would perform live until 2003, leaving that one note in the public consciousness for almost 20 years. Events in JFK Stadium took a more raucous turn than a lot of what happened at Wembley, with Madonna referencing nude photos of her being released in Playboy magazine, Tom Petty flipping off a crowd member, Mick Jagger intentionally ripping Tina Turner's dress, and Brian Adams referring to the atmosphere backstage as bedlam. But don't let that taint your view of this. This wasn't Woodstock 1999 by any means. Many people who attended Live Aid or viewed it on TV recall it with fondness. Reunions abounded in the show, with Led Zeppelin, The Who, Black Sabbath, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young all reuniting on stages at Wembley and JFK. Did they all sound great? No. Was it fun? 
Absolutely. One of the wildest stories to come out of the concert surrounds Genesis singer Phil Collins. Phil seemed to be on stage through the entire show, but you'd be surprised to learn that not only was he on stage for longer than most other performers, he was on both stages. Yeah, that's right. Phil Collins had probably the wildest day of his life on July 13th, 1985. He began the day sitting at a piano at Wembley Stadium to sing the hits Against All Odds and In the Air Tonight, before joining Sting in singing Long, Long Way to Go. For good measure, he joined the police singing backing vocals for Every Breath You Take. Now that would probably be enough to satisfy any artist, right? Performing for the largest audience ever assembled, right? But not Phil. Immediately following, he left the stage and sprinted to a waiting heli helicopter which flew him to Heathrow Airport, where he boarded a Concorde jet to fly across the Atlantic. On that jet, he ran into, would you even believe this, Cher. He introduced himself, they joked around, and he, she asked what he was doing. He said he was there for live aid. She said she had no idea what he was talking about. So he told her about it and suggested that she just show up at the end of the show to join them for the finale. Then, he booked it over to JFK Stadium, where he got there just in time to play his signature songs a second time, before joining Led Zeppelin in their reunion on the drums, and he wasn't even done yet! Also playing drums for Eric Clapton's set. After that, he was finally done. He was tired. And he didn't join the rest of the crew for the finale at the end of the night, electing instead to watch it from his hotel room with his crew. During the finale, he saw someone he recognized, and then he couldn't believe his eyes. There, on stage, during the finale of Live Aid, was his new friend, Cher. He'd suggested that she just show up. So she did. Live Aid was a worldwide spectacle. The same day of the show, other concerts sympathetic to the cause were held worldwide, in the Soviet Union, in Canada, Japan, Yugoslavia, Austria, Australia, West Germany, and others. Concert organizers expected to make around $5 million to send to Ethiopia. All told, they were able to raise $140 million. Unfortunately, if you may have guessed, the Ethiopian government at the time wasn't known for their excellent money management skills or their morality. At the time the money was sent to the country, they were still embroiled with a number of insurgencies, and much of that money was used to purchase guns from the Soviet Union. And were this the end of the tale, it would be a heartbreaking end, but fortunately, it's not the end. Not quite yet. Because Live Aid did more than raise money. It put foreign aid at the forefront of the public consciousness, and foreign policy became an electoral question. When news broke that the Ethiopian government was misusing the funds, farmers began growing surplus grain to send to Ethiopia, which is credited in solving the immediate hung African hunger crisis. While a larger, longer crisis did exist and still exists, Live Aid brought, in, brought the issue to the attention and potentially saved hundreds of thousands of lives by mobilizing farmers worldwide. Michael Burke, who filmed the documentary that started it all, said, quote, the money raised would have saved about two million lives. Live Aid made a terrific difference, but actually the key thing it did, which utterly dwarfed Band Aid and Live Aid, was to force a change of policy in the EU and particularly in the UK and America. The public opinion that they mobilized and represented was what counted.
end quote. Fortunately, in 1991, the Derg were overthrown and replaced by the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. While many other former Derg officials are part of the modern government, it also has many elements of other civilian leadership, and the country is no longer in dire need of aid as it was in 1985. President Marian and many of his advisors were convicted of genocide and sentenced to death in the 1990s. Marian still sits on death row at the time of this recording. Live Aid caused a change in the hearts of people. It unified them against suffering and anguish and made ordinary people realize that they could make a difference. Midge Ur, Ure, I'm not sure how to say that, it's Scottish, uh, but he performed with Ultravox at Live Aid. And he said, quote, A little girl who used to live next door to me a few years ago told me recently that she had learned about us in history. She said she had been reading about it all and my name had come up. That's just weird. I think the legacy of Live Aid is not just the fact that there are people alive today who wouldn't have been alive, but I think young people's perspective of charity has changed. Twenty years ago, charity was something the Women's Institute did. All of a sudden, their heroes are up there saying, I'm involved. End quote. Truly, it was an amazing experience. I feel that it's one of the great historical events in culture that I'd love to go and see firsthand because YouTube videos will never do the real thing justice. Oh, and Queen? Oh yeah. In a poll of over 50 artists, journalists, and music industry executives taken in 2005, their 21-minute Live Aid performance was rated the best live music performance in history. If you get a chance... Look it up and watch it. You can find it basically anywhere on the internet. Highly recommend watching it. It's, I mean, they made history. That's why they're on the podcast. All right. Well, that's the story of Live Aid, Janu uh, January, July 13th, 1985. That's when it went down and one of the greatest music events in all of history. It happened that day. And it did more than just be a music event to make money. It did far more than that. It changed a lot of people. It changed a lot of hearts. So uh, thank you for joining me and listening to me tell this story today. This is one of the stories that I'm going to remember for a long time. And uh, I hope that something like this will come up in my lifetime so I can go and celebrate uh, and be able to go to a concert like this. Because, I mean, I love concerts and I love helping people. If I can put the two and two together, that's fantastic. All right. If you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review uh, it really would help us get more people involved with the conversation about history. I will be back next Sunday uh, with a conversation about economics. We're starting this new format, and I'm really excited about it. So thank you all for joining me today, and I will catch you next week. Bon voyage.